listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18. The book of Acts, chapter 18, we're currently in a series of messages here on Sunday mornings just in the month of January called Vision, in which we're looking at different visions in the Bible and this concept of vision in the Bible, and we're looking at it in five different areas. Uh, Vision for your future, that's what we looked at last week. Vision for your city. Vision for your situation, that's next week. Uh, Then vision for the church and vision for others. So that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, We usually study, you know, consecutively through verses, uh, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. And we're going to get back to that. But we want to take this time, really, right here at the beginning of the year, to focus on this and seek the Lord for vision for not just our own lives, but for us corporately as a church. And before we go on, so go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Before we go on, I have one other matter of business that I want to uh, take care of with you guys. This is kind of family business. So I'm going to ask Kay Stewart to come up front here. Kay, Kay Stewart, let's give her a hand, eh? Kay Stewart. And you're like, why are we giving Kay a hand? Well, I'm going to tell you. Okay. All right. Whitefields Community Church started uh, years before I got here. And you know what, how it started? You may not know this. It started as a, a circle of chairs in the basement of the Lutheran Church over here on 3rd Avenue. And they, they let us, I mean, I wasn't here yet. There, there was a small group of people who would gather, and they were praying. They didn't even have a name yet, and they gathered, and they prayed, and they believed that God wanted to plant a church here in Longmont, a church that would be focused on the Bible, a church that would be focused on engaging in the mission of God, not just going to church, but being the church in Longmont and the world. And uh, Kay is one of those people. She's OG Whitefield. She is old school. She is the real deal. And for all these years, since before I got here, you know, Kay has been here. She is original, and uh, she's been teaching kids, you know. The whole time I've been here, Kay is just so faithful. Whitefields wouldn't be what it is without you, Kay. So just look around. Remember that? Remember that little group, right? Look at what God's doing. And I'll tell you what, he has a lot more that he's going to do. And you're a big part of that. And Kay is moving to Ohio. She's from Ohio, and, you know, she has an opportunity to move back, work in a, a family business. And, you know, some of Kay's been talking about is with us for a long time, and we're excited for her in this next venture. But, you know, we just want to honor you, Kay, because you, um, I'm surprised I'm cracking up. Huh? Okay, so, you know, we want to honor this. Look at this. She invested her life and her time into building something for God's kingdom and for other people. And that's a great thing. We want to honor that. So would you please bow your heads? We're going to pray for Kay as she moves. This is her last Sunday. Make sure you give her a big hug. And uh, we're going to miss you. Let's pray for you. Lord, thank you for Kay. Thank you, Lord, for all the time that she has invested in our church, in the building this body and this family. And Lord, we just ask that you would bless her as she goes to Ohio. Lord, that she would be blessed being there with her family, being part of that family business. And uh, Lord, thank you for all the ways that she's invested and the, all the ways that you have blessed those seeds and the fruit of that continues. And uh, Lord, we pray for a time in the future when Kay will return. She'll just be even more blown away by all the things that you've done, Lord, through her being part of that small group that began this church. So Lord, we pray for her. We bless her in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. 
Please open with me again to the book of Acts chapter 18. We're currently in a series of messages, like I said, called Vision. We're looking at vision for your future. That was last week. This week we're looking at vision for the church. And we're seeking God's vision. We want to have God's vision for these different areas in our lives, not just for ourselves as individuals, but also as a church corporately. And so I want to ask you the question, you know, what does it look like for us to have vision for our cities that aligns with God's vision for our cities. Let's go ahead and read our text this morning. I'm going to read you a few verses, and then what we're going to do also is kind of walk through more verses, verse by verse, through this section. So I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 11, then we'll pray again. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we read it, as we study it, Lord, speak to us through it. Thank you that you have given us your word, your revelation of yourself and your will for our lives. Lord, may we be people who hear it, who receive it, who put it into practice, and Lord, may you do a work of transforming us as we study it, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it look like for us to have a vision for our cities that aligns with God's vision for our cities? To answer that question, I want to take a look at the story of Paul the Apostle in the city of Corinth and how God spoke to him in a vision about that city and what Paul did with that vision that God gave him for the city. And as we do that, we're going to consider what it means for us in the cities and towns that we live in today. Uh, in Acts chapter 18, we see Paul, he's on his second missionary journey, and he's in the city of Corinth, and we see that there's kind of a progression that Paul goes through in this text as we're going to walk through it from verses 1 through 11, and that progression looked like this. It started out with discouragement, discouragement because of the city that is, the city that is, the status quo. Secondly, we see that that discouragement turned to encouragement because of the city that could be, a vision for the city that could be. And finally, we're going to see commitment, commitment to the means of transformation, commitment to the means of transformation. So number one, discouragement because of the city that is. It says in Acts chapter 18, verse one, here's what we read. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. In the prior chapter, Paul had been in Athens. He's on his second missionary journey. Now there were four major cities, four you know, large key cities in the Roman Empire at this time. Those cities were Rome, Athens, Ephesus, and Corinth. Rome, Athens, Ephesus, and Corinth. And each of these cities had a different flavor, and it played a different role in the empire and how the empire functioned. So Rome was the governmental capital and the, the military capital. That's where that was all based. Secondly, you know, Athens was really different than Rome. Athens was the intellectual capital. It was the philosophical capital. Uh, Ephesus, on the other hand, was very conservative and traditional in the pagan ways, and they were the religious capital. There was a big temple there to Diana, and so it was the, uh, Ephesus was the religious capital, but Corinth played its own role. Corinth was the commercial capital. It was the industrial capital of the empire. So whereas Athens was a shining city full of beautiful buildings and intellectual people, Corinth was very different. You know, so Paul's coming from Athens and coming to Corinth, it's a very different city, right? Corinth is a gritty, working-class city. Corinth is situated, uh, it's still there to this day, it's situated on a narrow strip of land called an isthmus, which is super hard to pronounce, right? And it's on this isthmus 
isthmus that's uh, right in between what's called the Peloponnesian Peninsula, which is that southern part of Greece that's only connected to the mainland of Greece, to this little isthmus, and that is where Corinth is. Now, that's a very strategic place because here's why. All of the travel and trade that goes on in southern Greece has to pass through Corinth, right? Everything gets bottlenecked right there in Corinth. So trade was happening there. But also because it was such a narrow area, they would get ships from the east that would come in. They'd also get ships from the west, and they could both meet there and sell their goods. It was just a convenient place, and they had huge markets there because of the trade routes, because of the shipping. In other words, Corinth was really a city um, characterized by commerce and business, But what Corinth is most famous for is that it was a city of immorality. It was most famous. I mean, Corinth would have made Las Vegas blush. See, uh, Corinth was was famous uh, for its immorality, so much so that there was a saying in those days, to act like a Corinthian. Literally, it was like a a saying that people would use that meant to be sexually immoral. In fact, there was a, a euphemism they would say. There was a slang term to have a Corinthian companion. That was slang for to have a prostitute. And so Paul came to this city on his second missionary journey. He's here to tell people about Jesus, to start a church, and to lead people in the ways of Jesus. And let's just say, this was not an easy place to do that. It was a, it's a hard place to do that because of the nature of the city. And so verse 2, here's what we read. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So, you know, looking at other parts of the New Testament, we can kind of piece this together. Here's what happened. Paul's new in town, right? He's never been to Corinth before. He doesn't know anybody. And so he had heard through the Christian community, the grapevine, that there's this couple who were Christians. They're from Italy, like from the area around Rome. Now, they had been kicked out during this, as you read, this guy uh, kicked out all the Jews of this region in Italy. And so these people were Christians, Aquila and Priscilla. And now they've moved to the city of Corinth. And people had told Paul, hey, if you ever find yourself in Corinth, you got to look up this couple. There's a, a Christian couple there. And maybe you could, you know, partner with them and work with them. So Paul comes to town. He looks up Aquila and Priscilla. And they're like, yeah, come stay with us in our home. And as it turns out, they have a business that makes tents. And it happens to be that Paul is a tent maker by trade. Now, it was very common for all Jewish children, Jewish young men in particular, to learn a trade. Even if they went to college and became a a doctor or a lawyer or a professor, in Paul's case, a theologian, they would also learn a trade. In fact, they had a saying amongst the Jewish people at that time that he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to steal. So every Jewish person, no matter what their job, Uh, maybe they worked a white-collar job, so to say, they would also know a trade that they would have something to fall back on in times of trouble. Paul's trade, he was a tent maker, and so he hooks up with Aquila and Priscilla. They're also tent makers, so Paul goes to work with them in their business, and they become really good friends. In fact, Paul mentions them in several of his other New Testament letters. Like in his letters to the Romans, he calls Aquila and Priscilla his fellow workers, and I love that about them. See, they, they weren't ordained clergy. They weren't like pastors, missionaries. No, they were just a Christian couple who worked a job during the week, but they had a heart for God and they served him in the church and they, they supported the, the work of God as much as they could. And so verse four, it says that at, at the same time Paul's working in the business, the tent making business with Aquila and Priscilla, he also reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
Now, during the week, Paul's work, you know, he's, he's at work making tents. And on the weekends, he's going out, meeting people, going to the synagogue, trying to tell people about Jesus and persuade them of the truth of the gospel so they can put their faith in Jesus and receive salvation. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was, or that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent, for now I go to the Gentiles. You know, people, as we see there in Corinth, they weren't just not interested. Some of them were actually openly antagonistic. They attacked Paul. And Paul, you know, is discouraged by the opposition that he's getting from them. And he says, fine. Hey, look, I was trying to help you guys. I'm trying to give you some information that could help you in your life, in your spirit. But look, if you don't want it, then fine. I'm out of here. Your blood be on your own heads. And he tells these Jews, he goes, I'm going to the Gentiles. And so I look what he does in verse 7. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. I love this. Paul's like, fine, I'm out of here, right? Bye. And he slams the door behind him and walks like 10 feet over to the next door and goes in there. And they start having church services in this Gentile guy's house who lives right next door to the synagogue. And check out what happens next. This is cool. Verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Well, it sounds like things were going pretty well there in Corinth, right? I mean, yeah, there's some opposition, which is a bummer. But look at all the good things that are happening. I mean, the leader of the synagogue is coming. Other people are coming. People are getting baptized. Things are happening, right? But here's what's interesting. Look at what we read next in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Now, let me just stop right there. If I were to tell you, hey, don't be afraid, you'd be like, well, I'm not, so thanks, right? Like, if I, if I were to tell you, hey, don't be afraid of a tornado of sharks, you would be like, well, I'm, I'm not, because I live in Colorado, and there's no such thing as a tornado of sharks, right? But in this case, why would God tell Paul not to be afraid? Well, apparently, Paul was afraid. Okay, so he says, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. This tells us a lot about what was going on in Paul's heart and mind at this time. The fact that God tells Paul not to be afraid tells us that Paul was afraid. The fact that God needed to tell Paul to keep on speaking and not be silent tells us that Paul must have been tempted to give up and stop speaking and be silent. The fact that Paul needed some encouragement tells us that in spite of all the good things that we can see that were happening, Paul felt discouraged. And how often is that true of you and me, right? Like there could be a million great things happening in our lives, but it's that one thing or that one thing that somebody says to us, that one criticism that just pierces to the heart. And it's almost like we can't even see all the good things. Well, that's kind of what it was like here with Paul. Great things are happening. We can see it. We're encouraged. But Paul's discouraged. He feels like leaving. He feels like giving up. He feels like quitting and stopping speaking. And he's afraid. Apparently, people were threatening Paul physically. And he was discouraged. And he felt like giving up. Paul was discouraged. Why? Because of the city that was. He was discouraged because of the city that was. See, Corinth was a very godless place. And Paul's preaching there was met with a lot of opposition. And even though people were becoming Christians, people were responding to the gospel, they were still very few in number. And this is the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. And there they are, just a handful of people in somebody's living room. It probably felt like they weren't making much of an impact in their city. And Paul is 
discouraged. He's struggling with discouragement. And I wonder how many of you guys, how many of you, when you look out at the world and at society and at culture and, and the things going on in the world, when you read the news, when you listen to radio and podcasts, how many of you struggle with discouragement? How many of you struggle with feeling discouraged about the way that things seem to be going, right? Maybe it feels like as a society, we've moved away from biblical values in different areas. For example, 20 years ago, you know, Christian sexual ethics were, were considered quaint or, you know, prudish. Um, but nowadays, those same Christian sexual ethics are actually considered bad and sometimes even harmful, See, there's been a shift, of course, in our society. Statistics show that in our own country, right, fewer people are going to church than at any time ever before in the history of our country. Fewer than ever before. The number of people who are, uh, say that they are agnostic or atheist is increasing to all-time highs in our country. And even within the church, right, we've, it's not like just all the bad stuff is out there, right? We've got problems here too, don't we? We've got schisms. We've got divisions. There are scandals and failures by Christian leaders. And, and people point to those things, don't they? And they say, see, that's why. That's why I don't go to church. That's why I don't believe in your God. And that can feel discouraging when you look at all these things that are going on. If you, you know, if you watch TV news, if you listen to political talk radio or podcasts, which I would suggest probably do less of if you do, um, you, you might feel like the world is just spinning out of control. And where is God in all of this, right? And sometimes if you're a Christian, people will be openly antagonistic to you. That's another thing, right? In your workplace, maybe in your extended family. And, and there can be this temptation to not just Talk, to just not talk about it, right? To just be quiet, to just keep your mouth shut and just uh, keep it to yourself because it's just easier that way. If other people don't know that you're a Christian, it just makes life easier. You know, sometimes as a Christian, you might feel like you're all alone. Maybe you feel like Elijah the prophet. Do you ever know about Elijah the prophet? Elijah the prophet felt like he was all alone. In fact, he even said, I am all alone. I am the only one. Okay, so here's the story. Elijah the prophet lived in Israel during the time of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, who were particularly bad. I mean, there were a lot of bad kings and queens during the time of the kings and queens. By the way, later on this year, we're going to study the books of First and Second Kings. But there were a lot of bad kings and queens uh, during that time. But King Ahab and Jezebel are just about as bad as it gets, right? They actually went on a campaign with the goal of turning Israel into a pagan nation. Like, that was their goal. Eradicate the worship of Yahweh, God, but actually instead, they wanted to bring in the worship of Baal. They supported Baal, this pagan god, supported the building of altars to Baal. They supported the training of priests to Baal, and they were all about it, right? They were into Baal, and they wanted everybody to be into Baal, and they tried to turn Israel into a pagan nation. And so Elijah saw this, and he's a prophet, right? And so he speaks up against it, but it seems like Elijah was the only one who was speaking up against it, and it seemed like nobody was even listening to him when he did. And at one point, Queen Jezebel basically got sick of Elijah trying to block her plans or trying to oppose her plans to turn Israel into a pagan nation. And she ordered some of her uh, you know, soldiers to go and find Elijah and assassinate him, kill him, put him to death. And so Elijah gets word of this, and so he runs away. And he runs off into the desert, into the wilderness, because this queen is sending people to kill him. And at one point, it says that he, was, he ran for an entire day. 
And he basically just collapsed out of exhaustion underneath a tree that he found in the wilderness. Not a lot of them. So he's like, I just got to get to that tree. So he gets to the tree, finally collapses under the tree. And check out what he says. It says that he, Elijah, asked the Lord that he might die. God, just kill me. Please just kill me. He said, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He's saying, God, please End my life. I want to die. I am a failure. I am a loser. You know, my dad was a loser, and I'm just like him. I'm a lousy prophet. I'm no better than anybody. I just want to die. He was discouraged. And he even said this to God. Check out what he says in verse 10 of 1 Kings 19. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord. In other words, God, I've been doing everything I can. I've been putting out 110%. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, but the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword. And check this out. I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He's saying, God, everybody has turned away from you except for me, and I'm the only one left. I'm all alone. But look at how God responds to Elijah. If you read through the section, here's what happens. God is so patient with him. God speaks to him and God tells him, Elijah, get up. I've got something else for you to do. And God tells him what to do next. But then at the end, kind of as a, as a final comment, he said, God says to him, and by the way, Elijah, did you know there are still 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal? In other words, you're not the only one. Elijah, there are 7,000 like you who are still faithful, who haven't bowed the knee, who haven't turned away, who are still walking with me and following me, says the Lord. Now, let's be honest. 7,000 is a relatively small number, especially when you consider that in Israel at this time, there were probably upwards of 2 million people. So 7,000 out of 2 million people is a remnant. It's a small remnant, but it's a remnant nonetheless. It's still significant. And the point is this. Elijah thought there was one. God says there's 7,000. The point is God was doing a lot more in Israel than Elijah was aware of, than Elijah could see, than than Elijah realized. And this information caused Elijah to go from being discouraged to being encouraged, and he went on his way to do what God had called him to do. And as we're going to see... Something very similar happened with Paul, and I think something very similar needs to happen with you and I, because we can look around at our society, and it's really easy to feel discouraged. That's not hard, right? Just like Paul, he looks around at his city, and he's discouraged. Why? By the moral, um, the moral depravity. He's discouraged by the godless culture. He's discouraged by what he sees in Corinth, and he's discouraged by the lack of response to the gospel, as well as by the open hostility that is, that is coming his way as a result of his faith in Jesus. Jesus in his preaching of the gospel. Now, we could say many of those same things about the cities that we live in today. And it's very common for people to be discouraged and disheartened by these things. But here's what I want you to see. Paul didn't stay discouraged. He was discouraged, but he didn't stay discouraged, and neither should we. And we're going to take a look now at what why Paul didn't stay discouraged. What happened that caused Paul to become encouraged about this city and his role there and his calling in that city? So that's, that's our second point. Encouragement because of the city that could be. Encouragement because of the city that could be. After telling Paul not to be afraid and not to give up and to keep on speaking, Then God told him why, why he should not be afraid, why he should not give up, why he should keep on speaking. Here's what he says in verse 10. For I am with you, and 
I have many people in this city who are my people. I have many more people in this city who are my people. God told Paul not to give up yet on that city. Don't give up yet on this city because there are more people that God wants to reach through you, Paul, through Paul in that city. And friends, I just want to tell you this. Do you know there are more people who God wants to reach in our cities? Amen? That's the truth. There are more people who God wants to reach in our cities. And guess who he wants to reach them through? He wants to reach them through you and through me, through us. But also, of course, through you. I don't want you to miss that. God wants to reach people through you. God was giving Paul a vision for the city that could be. God was giving Paul a vision for how to see the people in his city. Until now, Paul has only been looking at the city for what it is. It's a place of moral depravity. It's a place that's hard to live as a Christian. It's a place where there's opposition to the gospel. But God wants Paul not to just see the city for what it is. God wants Paul to see the city for what it could be. And God tells him, I have many people in this city who are my people. They just don't know it yet. See, that's the thing. What does that mean? They're my people. Here's what it means. It means that there are people in this city who are going to be Christians, but they're not Christians yet. They're going to be Christians, but they're not Christians yet. God has called them. He's chosen them. He knows their future. He knows their destiny. There are people in this city who are not following Jesus yet. They haven't embraced the gospel yet, but they will. And God looks at those people and he says, those are mine. Those people are mine. They just don't know it yet. See, many of them, maybe they haven't even heard the gospel yet at this point. Maybe they, maybe they haven't even heard the true message of the gospel. Or maybe they've heard something about somebody named Jesus. Or maybe they've heard something about these people called Christians. And maybe they think they know what Christianity is all about. But the reality is, the truth is, they don't even understand the gospel yet. Now maybe you would say, well, you know, maybe that was true in Paul's day and age in Corinth. And maybe there's some place around the world where people have not heard the gospel. They don't know what Christianity is, but not here. I mean, not where we live, right? Like everybody around here knows what Christianity is about and they know what the gospel is. And I would say, no way. That is not true. I would totally disagree. I think that's not true. There's so many people right here in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, people that you encounter every day who have heard about Jesus and they've heard about Christianity and they might think that they know what it is, but they do not yet understand the essence of it. They do not yet really understand the gospel in truth. How do I know that? Here's how. If you would go out on the street, put it to the test, go out on the street today and ask the average person on the street, what is the hope of Christianity? What is the core message that Christianity teaches? Or what does the Bible say is required in order to have a relationship with God and receive eternal life? Do you know what most people would say? Poll after poll, survey after survey. This isn't just my opinion, right? This is, lots of studies have been done on this. They show that the vast majority of people, if you ask them, what's the core message of Christianity? What, must, what does the Bible say you must do in order to have a relationship with God and have eternal life? They would say this. Christianity is just like every other religion. Uh, it's rules and stories and things that tell you how to be moral and, and be a good person. And a lot of people look at that, an increasing number of people today look at that and they say, you know what, I don't need some religion to tell me how to be a good person. I'm smart enough, I can figure that out on my own. I can go and be a good person, right? I don't need to believe in God in order to be good, right? I can be good without God. And, and I don't need you to tell me what I need to do. And, and, and here's the thing. Guys, that's not the gospel. If somebody thinks that that's what Christianity is about, 
They have fundamentally misunderstood it completely, 100% misunderstood it. That is not what Christianity is about. Guys, Jesus did not come to make us bad people less bad and more good. That's not what Christianity is about. Jesus didn't come in order to say, to point the way to God and say, there's the way, you know, go over there. No, Jesus came as God to us in order to make a way himself for us to be reunited to him. Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus didn't come just to make bad people less bad and good people more good. No, Jesus came to make dead people live. Jesus is our Savior. He didn't just come to teach us. He came to rescue us. That's the gospel. See, the gospel is what separates Christianity from every other religion, philosophy, belief system in the world. It is absolutely unique in what it says, the core fundamental message. Let me explain. Every religion in the world says this. God is here. You are down here. And here are the things that you need to do in order to get to God, in order to earn his love and favor and blessings and ultimately salvation. But the gospel, the message of Christianity, is something altogether different. It's a different message, fundamentally. The message of the gospel is this. God is here, and you are down here, but there is no amount of things that you could ever do in order to work your way to God, in order to earn his love, or earn his favor, or earn his blessings. You might say, well, wait a second, that sounds like bad news. There's good news. The good news is this. But God loves you. God loves you so much, and he has come down to you in order to bring you up to himself. You see, on the one hand, the one is the picture of us reaching up to God. The other one is the picture of God reaching down to us. It's so different. And he did that in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God, come to us to be our substitute both in life and in death. He lived the life that you and I should have lived, right? The, that, but we failed to. Right? Jesus came and he lived the life that you and I should have lived. He perfectly fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements, a perfect life, and he did that on our behalf. And he died in your place, on your behalf. He didn't only suffer physically, but he also suffered spiritually. The judgment for your sins and mine, he bore those on the cross. He bore that judgment. But death couldn't hold him. That's also the good news, right? He conquered death. He conquered the devil. He conquered the grave. And if you receive that gift of his love and grace by faith, then he will justify you and redeem you and save you and ultimately glorify you. And day by day here on this earth, as you live your life, you get to live as a child of God, as a friend of God. And one day when this life is over, he will bring you to himself, not because you did enough to earn it. No, no way but because of what he did for you, because he loves you. See, that's the gospel. That's really good news. And I've met so many people over the years who have told me, you know what, I grew up going to church, um, but all I ever got out of it or all I ever remember was just moral rules and stories about how to do better and try harder and be a better person. Until one day, I actually understood. You know, after many years, years later, I finally understood one day the real gospel, what the gospel is for the first time in my life. See, just like there were people in Corinth who had, never, who, who had never heard the gospel, they'd heard about Jesus, they'd heard about Christians, they thought they knew what it was all about, 
but they had never really heard the gospel, I guarantee you there are people in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, people you encounter every day who might think they know what Christianity is all about, but they don't really understand the gospel. And these shifts, guys, that are taking place in our society with less and less people attending church, more and more people identifying as agnostic and atheists, that that number of people is only going to increase people who are what we call gospel illiterate. They don't actually know what the gospel is. So it's all the more important that we be those who speak it. See, God said to Paul, and God would say to us, don't give up. Don't be silent. I am with you, and I have many more people in that city. You know, there, there are people in that city, God would say, who don't yet know my love and grace, but they will, and I want them to come to know it through you. See, aside from people, on the one hand, who haven't heard the gospel, there are also people who, who had probably heard the gospel that that you know, Paul had preached. They had heard the gospel, but they hadn't yet embraced it. See, in our, in our lives too, that was the case with me in my life. I heard the gospel. I understood it. I knew what it was, but there was a time in my life when I resisted it, when I, I, I dug in my heels. I didn't want to give up control over my life, right? So I knew what it was, but I resisted it. I didn't want to put down my yes. Paul the apostle, he had a time like that in his own life. Jesus spoke to him and said, Paul, you're kicking against the goads. It's this picture of, you know, God's trying to prod him in a certain direction. And like a stubborn animal, he's kicking against the goads, but hurting himself in the process. Paul understood the gospel for a time before he accepted it, before he responded to it, before he received it. And I guarantee there are people in our communities who understand the gospel, but they're resisting. They're holding out for one reason or another. They haven't yet put down their yes. There are more people in this city who God wants to reach. In your city, wherever it is, if it's one of the surrounding towns, there are people in those cities God wants to reach so they can know love and joy and freedom and peace in Christ because of the gospel. He wants to use you in that process of helping bring these people to that point in their lives. So don't be afraid. Don't give up. Don't be silent. Maybe that is a word for one of you here today. You've been struggling with that exact thing. You're tempted to be silent, to give up, and God would say no. Don't do it. Don't be afraid. Don't give up. Don't be silent. I'm with you. Now, guys, I want to tell you this. I have to tell you this. We are not out to browbeat people with the truth, right? Or we're not here to drop truth bombs on and be like, boom, like, here you go. There's some truth, whether you like it or not. That's not what we're about, guys. Our goal is to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. That's what we're told to do in Ephesians, right? We are called to be ambassadors for Christ. And to be an ambassador means we don't just say what is true, but we do it in a way that reflects God's heart, right? It's humble, it's patient, it's kind, it's loving. What does it look like to develop God's vision for our cities? It means not just seeing people for who they are now, but beginning to look at them and see them for who they can be and when God gets a hold of their life, to begin to look at them and see what God wants to do in and through their lives. See, the vision that, God, that Paul received from God was so encouraging to him that it says in verse 11, he stayed in Corinth for a year and six months more. A year and six months. Now you might say, that doesn't sound like very long, right? Like I've accidentally done things for a year and six months, right? Like that's not even a long time. But you need some perspective. Up until this point, this is Paul's second missionary journey, up until this point, this is the longest that he's ever stayed in any city at all. In his third missionary journey, he's going to stay in Ephesus for three years. That'll be the longest he spends anywhere. But apart from Ephesus, at this point, especially until this time, this is the longest he ever spent in any city. 
And it was because, why? Because of this vision that he got from God, that God had more people he wanted to reach in this city through Paul. And so our message, right, the message for you and me when it comes to our cities is this, don't give up. If it seems like a huge task, right? Huge task, reach a community with the gospel. Okay, where do you even start, right? That's such a huge task. It can seem daunting, and sometimes when things seem so big, it's hard to even get started because it just seems so impossible. You know, last week we talked about this idea, this biblical metaphor of walking. How, you know, walking is just such a small action. It can seem so insignificant to take a step. It doesn't take you very far. But over time, those consistent, repeated, small actions lead somewhere. And each step might seem like such a small thing. But after a while, if you keep doing it, you look back and you're surprised how far you've gone and how far you've come. See, it's like... How do you eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time. How do you build a house? One brick at a time. How do you reach a city? One person at a time. One conversation at a time. One loving action at a time. And God said, I have many people in this city. Many people. That's an interesting phrase because what it means is not everybody, but somebody. And maybe more than you think. Not everybody, but somebody, maybe more than you think. And so we reach out as ambassadors for Christ, not knowing how God is going to use our words and our actions in people's lives in order to do his work, but we do it faithfully, trusting that he's going to do it. You know, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, we read the prayer that Jesus prayed over his disciples at the end of the Last Supper. It was right before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was arrested and then later uh, crucified, you know, taken away. And there, right as he's is about to go to the cross, his last prayer that he's going to pray for them, he gathers them up after dinner, the, after the Last Supper, and he prays over them. And that prayer, you can imagine, was burned into their minds. They never forgot those words. And, and they wrote them down in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. And I want you to notice one thing that Jesus prayed in that prayer. Uh, it's called the High Priestly Prayer. And here's what he prayed. He said, I do not ask for these only, right? He's praying over his disciples. I don't only ask for these, but also for for those who will believe in me through their words. Jesus was thinking about and praying for those who were not there yet. Those who were not believers yet, but one day they would be. And guys, may I say this? Our church doesn't only exist for those of us who are here already. It also exists for the sake of those who are not here yet. Our church doesn't only exist for us who are here already. It does, but not only for us. It exists also for the sake of those who are not here yet. You know, that empty seat next to you, wherever you're sitting, you know, I want you to look at that seat, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to be praying, even right now, silently. Be praying for the person who is going to walk in these doors and fill that chair, maybe next week, maybe in two weeks, maybe in one month from now. That chair is there for them. They haven't yet walked through our doors but God is working in them right now. He's drawing them to himself. He's working in their life. And you don't know who they are. But one day they're going to walk in this room and we're going to be ready, aren't we? We're, we've, we're prepared. We're waiting for them. We're expecting them. We're praying for them already. And you're going to see that person come in and sit in that chair. I don't know, maybe next week, maybe in a month from now. I'm not sure. But when they do, you're going to think to yourself. You're going to say, there they are. 
that's the person I prayed for. We've been expecting them. I've been praying for them, and now they're here. And maybe that person is somebody that you already know, and God is gonna use you in their life, right, through conversations, through interactions. Maybe one day you're gonna be the one to invite them and encourage them to fill that chair that you've been praying for, that person who's gonna sit in that seat. Maybe you're the one who's gonna lovingly minister to them as an ambassador for Christ. But right now, all of us, right, look at those chairs and pray for them. You know, I don't know who they are, but I'm excited to meet them, and I'm sure you are too. That's why we always want to have more chairs in this room than we actually need at any given moment. Why? Because our church doesn't only exist for the sake of us who are here already. It also exists for the sake of those who aren't here yet. God has more people in our cities. Do you believe that? It's true. God has more people in our cities. He wants to use us to bring his love and grace and transformation into their lives. And as Paul watched the the people of Corinth, you know, he would stand on the street and just people watch, right? He watched the people walk into the pagan temples and walk out. He watched the people walk into the houses of prostitution. And God is telling him, some of those people who are walking in the temples, walking in the house of prostitution, some of those are my people. They just don't know it yet. They're going to be Jesus people. They're going to realize that everything they've been looking for in those temples, in those houses of prostitutions, it is only and ever only found in me. You know, guys, that everybody in the world essentially wants the same things, don't they? Everybody wants the same things. Everybody wants to to feel loved. Everybody wants to be accepted. Everybody wants to have a purpose. Everybody wants happiness and joy. Everybody wants to escape the suffering and pain of this world. Everybody wants to have answers to the big questions of life. But oftentimes what we do is that we go looking for those things in places that will not deliver. And not only will they not deliver, but they will hurt us and they will even destroy us. But ultimately, the things that we're looking for can only ever be found in Jesus. And so how do people realize that? How do we keep ourselves coming back to Jesus for those things rather than going to places that won't deliver and which will hurt us and and even hurt us and destroy us? Well, that brings us to our third and final point, which is this. A commitment to the means of transformation. Notice what it says in verse 11. Not only did Paul stay there for a year and six months, but look look at what he did. Teaching the word of God among them. Teaching the word of God. See, the vision that God gave to Paul, he didn't just stay in the city, but he was committed to teaching the word of God because he understood the word of God is the means by which we are transformed. Did you know that it's while Paul was in Corinth that he wrote his letter to the Romans? So when you read Romans... Come back here to Acts 18. This is when it took place. During this year and a half that he was there, he wrote his letter to the Romans. And in Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about, he says, don't be conformed to the ways of this world. Don't just do what everybody around you is doing. But I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. How does that happen? How are our minds renewed? By the Spirit of God, through the Word of God. By reading it, studying it, engaging with it, applying it to your life. The primary function of the word of God is the way that God speaks to us, leads us in the right direction, shows us when we're off course. He shapes us. He transforms our hearts and our minds. You know, many of us at this time of year, New Year, right, we say things like, New Year, New You. We're thinking about transformation, right? Leaving behind who we were and becoming the person we deep down desire to be. Guys, I want to tell you, we all desire transformation right here. This is the means of transformation, fundamental, true, lasting transformation. We've got it right here. This is why here at Whitefields, this is who we are. This is, we're a church that is committed to the means of transformation, teaching the scriptures, the word of God. God has revealed himself. He has revealed his will, and he has given it to us in these words. How foolish would we be to, to neglect it? 
right? And so Paul, he was committed to teaching the word of God there in Corinth because he understood it's a means of transformation. And you and I, as we seek to be used by God, here's what I want you to remember. You can't give somebody the flu unless you have the flu, right? It's flu season. Think about it like this. You can't give somebody the flu unless you've got the flu yourself. In other words, think about it like this. What if you were to read the Bible every day, not just asking God to speak to you and give you, you know, some nugget to encourage you? What if, as you read your Bible every day, you're also asking God to show you something or give you something that you can share with somebody else? Just imagine how that would change and transform your Bible reading time every morning, right? Because now your devotional time isn't just about you. Now it's about preparing you and equipping you to be used by God. You're storing up God's word in your heart, right? Like, like in a warehouse, you're bringing it, putting it on the shelf, and it's there for you to get it out later and use it when God is going to give you that opportunity. And you're going about your day, and you're going to be looking for that opportunity. God, who's the person? When am I going to have the opportunity to share that thing that you showed me, that you gave me this morning, right? It totally transforms the way you read the Bible. In Acts chapter 5, the Christians in Jerusalem were accused by people who didn't like them, they were accused of filling the city with their teachings. Filling the city with their teachings. How did they do that? Well, here's what's interesting. One of the Greek words for preaching and, and you know, presenting the gospel, it means conversing as you go about your day. So one of the ways that they fill the city with the teachings of Jesus is through conversations, through talking to people, bringing the gospel in their conversations. And think about if we did that. We would leave this place as just a, an army of people going out into our neighborhoods and workplaces, filling them with the teachings of Jesus and God's word. In Colossians chapter 4 verse 6, this interesting phrase, it says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. So salt is a metaphor for the salient truths of God's word. And it's a good metaphor. Here's why. Because just imagine, right, like you're going to put some salt on somebody's food and you just dump a huge mountain of salt on their food, right? Just a huge pile of salt on their food. Well, they would probably be very angry with you. They wouldn't like that very much, would they? Right? And so he says, you know, salt in large volumes is toxic, isn't it? Not only that, in in large volumes, it puts a really bad taste in your mouth. But if you sprinkle a little here, a little there, and as the opportunities come up in conversation, you will be filling your city with the teachings of Jesus, which has the ability to change hearts and change minds and change lives and change destinies. Guys, we all know what it's like to be faced with a daunting task, something that just seems insurmountable, too big. And we've all, at times, been tempted to give up. Did you know Jesus was tempted to give up too? In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night when he was betrayed and arrested, he had every opportunity to run away before they arrested him. Do you know that? And he prayed there waiting for them to come and arrest him. He had every opportunity to give up, to bail, to, to run away, and he didn't. He chose to stay. He was faced with the task of bearing the sins of the world and taking the judgment of God for sins that he didn't even commit, that you and I would commit. And yet, he didn't give up. He didn't run away. He chose to stay, to be arrested, beaten, mocked, and crucified. And what kept him there, what kept him in the garden was what? It was love. Love for you, love for me, love for people who hadn't even been born yet, even though we didn't love him yet. What kept him there was love for people who didn't even love him back. See, a few days prior to that, Jesus stood on a hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem 
And as he looked over the city, you know, you can see the people moving around. They look like ants. You know, you can't see their faces. You just see them going about their day. Jesus looked at these people and he wept. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. And here's what he said. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. He said, how often I would have gathered you together to myself like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. That was Jesus' heart for the city. He longed to gather them to himself. And I believe this is God's heart for our cities as well. He desires to draw people to himself and bring them in under his wings and embrace them. And many people are not willing And yet, in spite of that, Jesus didn't give up on Jerusalem, did he? He didn't bail. He didn't give up in Gethsemane. He didn't give up on you. He didn't give up on me. He persevered. And because of what he did for us, by his strength, we can persevere in his callings in our lives as well. And I just pray that God would help us to see our communities the way that he sees them. And may we be encouraged to be his hands and feet in these communities, committed to the word of God, the transformation, the means of transformation, both for our lives and for the people that God wants to speak to in our cities. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how you've brought it into our lives, how it transforms us. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that it isn't about what we have done or haven't done, but, Lord, it is about what you did, Jesus, for us because you loved us. Lord, help us to be your hands and feet. Help us that we would be like Paul, Lord, that we would go from seeing just the city that is to seeing the city that could be, that we would have your vision for the places where we live. We'd have your vision for the people who are around us and give us, Lord, perseverance just as you persevered. Lord, to not give up, to not be silent and to go on doing the things you've called us to do. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.